Hello, this is Beth Wells, cellist with the Fort Collins Symphony. And Tom Bittinger, bassoonist. Welcome to the second of our podcasts about the music we are playing this year during the 70th season of the Fort Collins Symphony. Today, we will be talking about the music in Masterworks 2. The concert is titled Pure Gems because the pieces we are playing are rare and beautiful. This concert features two piano concertos, one written by Robert Schumann and the other by his wife, Clara. Also, we're playing one of my favorites, The Variations on St. Anthony's Chorale by Brahms. But first, the concert opens with an overture by the German composer Karl Maria von Weber. Actually, his full name is Karl Maria Friedrich Ernst Freiherr von Weber. Hmm, I think I'll just call him Karl. That works. Karl wrote music around the beginning of the 1800s. That was right about the time of Beethoven. Yes, in fact, Weber was once accused of copying Beethoven, an accusation that really ticked him off. Later in his life, besides being a composer, he became a well-respected music critic, a virtuoso pianist, and a conductor. He was one of the first to stand in front of the orchestra and conduct with a baton like we see today. The piece we are playing is an overture to an opera called Peter Schmoll und seine Nachbarn, which translates to Peter Schmoll and his neighbors. This was von Weber's third try at writing an opera, but his first big hit, and he wrote it when he was only 15 years old. Carl went on to write several successful operas, as well as church music, symphonies, and concertos. He wrote an awesome bassoon concerto. Would you like to hear it? I'm sure it was awesome, but no, not right now. Oh. But let's listen to a little bit of the overture that the Fort Collins Symphony is playing. the overture, our program continues with the first of the two piano concertos we will be performing, and we'll start with Clara Schumann's concerto. It's pretty unusual that we're doing two piano concertos on one concert. That's right. And even more rare that one soloist is doing both. Right, I can't remember ever having that happen. So our soloist is our guest artist, Sarah Davis Buchner, playing both the Clara Schumann and the Robert Schumann concertos. It'll be really interesting to hear each concerto side by side. I mean, Clara was only a teenager when she wrote hers, and yet Robert was more mature. He was 35 when he wrote his. And Clara received guidance from Robert when she was writing her concerto, and Robert got advice from Clara on his concerto. But um, let's back up and talk about how Robert and Clara got together, because obviously they got married. Right. That's one of the great love stories of all time, Robert and Clara Schumann. They first met when they were kids and were playing piano on the same program. Clara was only nine. Robert was 18. Robert was so impressed with her playing on this program that he decided he really wanted to study with her teacher. Her teacher happened to be her father, Friedrich Wieck. So it wasn't long after that that Robert was taking lessons from Friedrich And not only that, he rented a room in their household. Clara and Robert hit it off from the beginning. They were really close friends. 
and then they fell in love. When Claire was 18, Robert asked her father if he could marry her, and to his big surprise, Claire's father said, uh, no, you may, you may not marry her, and he didn't really think too highly of Robert's uh, future. Oh, man, that must have been a big surprise to Robert. It was a big blow, for sure. And so they went to court to sue to get married. And um, it was a three-year battle, but they finally won, and they were married in 1840. But it was just one day before Clara's 21st birthday. So they went to court, they finally could marry, and it was only one day before she would have been legal anyway. Right. Oh, man, sounds like they should have just waited. It sounds like they should have. That would have been logical. But young love is rarely logical. So getting back to her piano concerto, we really should call it the Clara Wieck piano concerto because her name was not yet Schumann when she wrote it. She started this piece when she was only 13 years old. Can you imagine 13-year-old person these days writing a piano concerto? Um, There aren't very many that I know. I mean, there's probably somebody, but none that we know. So she premiered the concerto, playing the solo herself. She was only 17. And none other than the composer Felix Mendelssohn was conducting. Wow. Can you believe it? I believe it. The concerto is in three movements. Let's listen to when the piano makes its first entrance in movement one. the second movement of this concerto is a romanza and it's a favorite of mine because it features a solo cello only a solo cello with the piano that means i get to rest that's right first the piano plays the theme let's hear that plays that same melody accompanied by the piano. finale is lively and is as long as the first two movements combined and interestingly Clara wrote it first before composing movements one and two. In fact Robert did the orchestration for this movement as a help to his teenage friend. Ah. Here's a bit of the beginning of the finale. What a great piece from this young composer. 
Yes, Clara was just brilliant. Unfortunately, as a woman, it was not easy for her to be accepted as a composer. Even she didn't think a woman could be a composer, and she stopped composing at a relatively young age. She once said, I believe that I possessed creative talent, but I have given up on this idea. A woman must not desire to compose. There has never yet been one able to do it. Should I expect to be the one? Wow, she did not give herself enough credit. She was, though, during her lifetime, an internationally known concert pianist. She was the main breadwinner for the family, and she made her money by playing concerts. Yes, and while playing these concerts, she became very influential in changing what was expected of concert pianists. She was the first to play all of her concertos by memory, which everybody does nowadays. Right. And apparently that didn't used to happen. Also, rather than just playing um, arrangements of popular tunes or her own pieces, which was the norm, she championed works of other composers, like those of her husband Robert, or Chopin, or Mendelssohn, or her friend Brahms, that we'll talk about in a few minutes here. And not only was Claire the main financial support of the family, but she also raised eight children and two of her grandchildren. What an amazing woman, and a real gem of a piano concerto. After intermission, we continue the concert with Clara's husband, Robert's Concerto. Because of a hand injury, Robert Schumann gave up on becoming a concert pianist, and he decided he would concentrate on composing only. Now, I've always heard that he hurt his hand by using some machine to strengthen it. Is that true? Well, I've always heard that, too. But when I was reading to prepare for this, um, I see that Clara has always disputed that story and said that his problem was not due to any sort of device, but it was just an affliction of the whole hand. I guess she should know. Anyway, because of that problem, he devoted his life to composing and not playing, which is good for us musicians and anyone who goes to symphony concerts. He wrote many, many pieces for solo piano, and even more for voice and piano. In the year 1840 alone, he wrote at least 138 songs. Also, he wrote choral works, symphonies, overtures, chamber music, and concertos. His cello concerto is one of my favorites in the cello repertoire. He also wrote violin concertos and a really cool piece for four horns and orchestra called Concertstück. And this one piano concerto. He actually started at least three others, but this one in A minor is the one he finished. It didn't come easily, though. The piece started as a fantasy for piano, but Robert couldn't get anyone to publish it. He tried two revisions to the fantasy, and he still couldn't sell it. His wife, Clara, urged him to expand it to a full concerto. When he added the second and third movements, the concerto was finally published. Clara played it on its premiere in 1845. The first movement is basically his original piano fantasy. It's marked Allegro Affettuoso, which means lively with emotion. Listen to this. That melody the oboe just played is then echoed by the piano. That, right there, is the Clara theme. The what? The Clara theme. Remember, in our first concert, Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique, Berlioz had the Idée Fixe theme for his beloved. Yeah. Well, with these four notes, Schumann is playing tribute to Clara. Listen to it again. 
It is the four notes C-B-A-A and represents the spelling of Clara's name in Italian, which is C-H-I-A-R-A, pronounced Chiara. From that, he got C-B-A-A? <laughs> well, in Germany at the time, H referred to the note B natural. Uh, B flat was represented by the letter B. So for Schumann, it made perfect sense that C-H-I-A-R-A would sound like C-B-A-A. I know, it's kind of a stretch, but it worked for Robert. Anyway, that theme is the basis for the entire first movement. He shows it in many different instruments and keys and tempos, building to a huge virtuosic piano cadenza. That's where the orchestra drops out and the soloist plays alone for a while. The movement ends with these four strong chords. The second movement, intermezzo, opens with piano and strings trading a simple melody that will be heard throughout the movement. movement follows the intermezzo without a break and then erupts into a joyous A major theme. Listen to how he uses the Clara theme to transition from the slow to the fast movement. Audiences in 1845 loved this concerto, and we're pretty sure you will too. Wow, listen, they really did love it. I don't think that was the 1845 audience, but yes, they did. Since its premiere, this has become one of the most popular piano concertos in the literature. Sadly, this was also the time in Robert's life when he began to experience the symptoms of the illness that would eventually end his life. He would be overcome with fits of shivering and an apprehension of death. He experienced an intense fear of high places and all metal instruments like keys Schumann's diaries also state that he suffered constantly hearing the note A5 sounding in his ears. Wow. For the next several years, these symptoms came and went, and Robert continued to compose. Finally, in 1854, they became so bad, he tried to kill himself by jumping off a bridge into the Rhine River. Luckily, some boatmen pulled him out, and then he checked himself into a hospital for the insane. But unfortunately, two years later, he died in 1856. So now, during his illness and after his death, even more of a burden falls onto Clara to support her family. Right. She continues to tour as a concert pianist and also teaches, always promoting Robert's works and those of Brahms for the rest of her long career. 
She died of a stroke at age 76. Her last public performance was at age 72. And the very last piece she played, it was the piano duet version of the next piece on our program, Brahms's Variation on a Theme by Haydn. In 1853, a 20-year-old young man named Johannes Brahms came calling on the Schumann household. He had a letter of introduction from a mutual friend, violinist Joseph Joachim, and had come to ask to study with Robert. By now, the Schumanns were both well-known in the musical world, but the young Brahms was still looking for his big break. Robert and Clara welcomed him to their home. Brahms played piano for them, and they were overwhelmed with his skill and musicianship. Clara wrote in her diary that day that Brahms seemed as if he was sent straight from God. Actually, Brahms had tried to meet Robert three years earlier than this. Oh, really? Yes, he sent Schumann some of his scores and asked for input, but they were returned, unopened. But in a few years, when he came with the letter from Joachim, he was welcomed? Right. Just goes to show you. It's not what you know. It's who you know. Anyway, all three of them hit it off. Not only did the Schumanns become his mentors, but they all became very close friends. Unfortunately for Robert, this was about the time his illness was worsening, and he checked into the asylum. While he was hospitalized, Brahms visited him often and was a great help to Clara, helping her deal with running the household without Robert, even babysitting while she was out on tour. Clara and Brahms grew very close. Indeed, Brahms confessed to friends that he loved her, However, there is no evidence that their relationship was ever anything more than a close friendship. They remained friends until Clara's death in 1896. Brahms passed away less than a year after she did. Isn't there a tragic story about Brahms trying to get to Clara's funeral? Yes, there is. It's very sad. Due to a telegraph not being delivered, Brahms heard about Clara's death a day late. He took the train right away to get to the town of Frankfurt to her funeral but fell asleep on the train and missed his connection mm. and woke up in the wrong town. When he finally got to Frankfurt, he was shocked to find out that the service was actually being held in Bonn, oh. over a hundred miles away. When he finally got to Bonn, sweaty and stressed out, the memorial service was over and the funeral procession was on its way to the cemetery. Brahms was so distraught, the story goes, that he couldn't bring himself to join the other mourners, so he sat behind a bush and wept. Oh, it's very sad. Very sad. The final piece on this second Fort Collins Symphony Masterworks concert is the variations on a theme by Haydn, written by Brahms. This piece is written 20 years after he first met the Schumanns, and at age 40, he had yet to write his first symphony, due in part to his fear of being compared to Beethoven. And also, he was such a perfectionist. In fact, he destroyed many of his early pieces because he didn't think they were good enough. This set of variations we are playing was his way of trying out his symphonic writing skills. He first wrote it for two pianos. That was the piece Clara played on her final concert. Then he wrote the orchestra version we are playing. Here's a fun fact. It's programmed as variations on a theme by Haydn, but it turns out the theme isn't written by Haydn at all. Really? Yeah. Scholars now think that a publisher labeled the theme as being composed by Haydn in order to sell more copies, but it was really written by someone else. So now, it is just as common to see this piece called Variations on St. Anthony's Chorale. The piece opens with that St. Anthony Chorale.
One of the things that attracted Brahms to this tune is that it consists of two five-measure phrases. This is unusual. Normally, in a classical melody, there would be two four-measure phrases. Listen again. One, two, three, four, five, and then we do it again. One, two, three, four, and five. This theme is followed by eight delightful variations and a finale. Each of the variations starts with two five-measure phrases, just like the chorale did. For example, here's the beginning of variation one. Listen for the five-measure phrase. Another thing Brahms likes to put in his music is twos against threes. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, he writes melodies that have two notes to a beat. One, two, one, two, one, two. Happening the same time as rhythms sounding three to a beat. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So the resulting sound would be like this. One, one two, two, three, one, one two, three, one, one two, two, three. See if you can hear it in this example, also from variation one. Listen for the low instruments playing in twos like this. While the violins play in threes like this. All this while the rest of the orchestra is strongly giving the beat. Here it is all together. While every variation has elements of the original chorale, the first variation where you can really hear the St. Anthony melody is number six. It starts like this. Can you hear the chorale melody? I think so, but I'm not sure. Um, maybe this will help. Listen to variation six and the chorale played at the same time. Oh, now I hear it. How do you do that, Tom? Just a little podcast magic. The finale is a triumphant pasacalia. A uh, pasa what? A pasacalia. It's a musical form where the bass line keeps repeating. Maybe you've heard Pachelbel's Canon. I've played uh -huh, it yeah. many times. That's that a pasacalia. And actually, many rock and pop songs are written over repeating bass line as well. Brahms created a bass line from the first five measures of the chorale. Then he keeps repeating those five measures while the rest of the orchestra plays ever-changing counter melodies on top of it. It's a set of variations within a set of variations. That Brahms, he was one clever guy. He sure was. After all the variations of variations, the St. Anthony theme comes back triumphantly in the full orchestra. 
Please join us for Masterworks 2 Pure Gems, Saturday, November 2nd at the Lincoln Center. This is Tom Bittinger and Beth Wells for the Fort Collins Symphony.